Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Attention, attention, action this day, June the 1st, 1940, is what we are talking about here on We Have Ways of Making You Talk in our Dunkirk Eight Days That Changed the World special. I think we've, I've, I've moved on from most important week in history. I think Eight Days That Changed the World. Or well, Eight Days That yeah, Changed like that. the World. I like that. That sounds uh, good. Um, uh, of course, um, we are recording this in advance, uh, by the way, uh, sweet listener. And this morning I woke to see James Holland rebuking a former French ambassador. Oh, dear <laughs> on Twitter. me. What? Me. What? I mean, what? talk, about, I mean, talk really? about, about kind of old old theories and enmities kind of still going on. But from a French ambassador as well. I mean, dear me. Well, former. I mean, someone former. then said maybe this is why he's an ex-diplomat, you know. Because <laughs> it wasn't very diplomatic, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, oh, you know, the, the classic, the English buggered off and left us in it. Uh, well, well, We carried I mean, on fighting for returned, three more weeks, you know. Well, well, apart from that, but then and then also returned, thank you very much. And, <laughs> I mean, boo, the problem is, is then you turn into Marc Francois or, you know, some UKIP, I go, fucking frogs. Anyway, um... <laughs> I love the French. I drive around in a French car. I mean, you know, a really old one at that. Yeah. Um, um, but no, but... it's an SS car, mate. It's oh, an SS shut car. Up, Everyone shut knows up. that. No, it's not. It's the French forces of the interior. Everybody knows that. <laughs> so, so June the first. Yes, the which was a Saturday back in nineteen forty. Um, which was a Saturday. A Saturday. Now, just before, just before um, we get going, um, the one thing we haven't touched on. Um, much is we talked to Steve Prince at the beginning of the week about the naval contribution, but what's the what's happening attrition wise to the naval contribution? You know, because we talk about attrition an awful lot on on uh, on the podcast. We talk about the idea of attriting and and the idea that you know you wear the enemy down any which way you can. And of course, yes. um, with regards to with regards to the Battle of Britain, after all. The, the Luftwaffe is attrited in the Battle of France in a way that leaves it unable to fight the Battle of Britain. So the Navy here and its contribution, is it leaving itself 
exposed with the losses and damage it's experiencing in the Dunkirk, in Dynamo, is it leaving itself... I mean, you're shaking your head. He's shaking his head, listener. But, but, but I mean, the Navy loses what? Um, uh, 39 destroyers are sent into action. 41. Six are sunk, 41. 19 are damaged. 41. 41, 41. Okay. Um, six, right. Yeah, six are sunk. Five minesweepers are sunk. Uh, one Corvette. Yep. Uh, total loss of kind of... I'm not including lighters... Um, yep. uh, and, and whalers and all the rest of it, but to the to the Royal Navy, total loss is our eleven. Eleven out of the largest navy in the world. Uh, uh, um, when we're talking largest navy in the world, we're talking what? How, how many destroyers? So the navy deploys, you say, forty-one destroyers. How many destroyers has it got in all? Over two hundred. Yeah, you see, I mean, this is the, this is this is. This is also where it gets interesting if we, you know, because after all, the, the, I'm talking if the if the if the let's let's say in your mind's eye that the, the next battle you're going to have to fight if you're the navy, if the if if things carry on the way they're going is a sea lion battle. They're not calling it that at the moment, but the, uh, um, we're calling that that with hindsight. Yeah. The next battle they may have to fight is a sea. This isn't affecting their ability to fight that battle at all, is it? I mean, no. I know the navy's no, all no, over not the at world, all. Not and at they're all. in the South Atlantic, and they're in the they're in the they're in uh, Southeast Asian seas, and all that sort of thing. But but this isn't and the Mediterranean. But but you know, there's an awful lot. Of, there's an awful lot of tonnage of Royal Navy ships that if they put if they are uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, go to warp factor 10, can be back in English waters, which is where they'd need to be. I'm not British waters necessarily. Uh, you know what I mean? It, within a couple of days, within 48 hours. Yeah. So if the shit hits the fan, as it were, we keep using that expression because it, it sums this week up, really. Well, this is um, why Charles it, it, Forbes, who is the, the admiral in charge of the home fleet, is very against massing in southeast England at this yeah. time. Because he says you don't need to. You know, there's, there is nowhere around the British Isles that we can't be within 24 hours. Yeah. And there is no way so, the Germans are going to la- launch an invasion without us knowing about it 24 hours beforehand. Because of, so because of our So in the same air power. way... Well, so, yeah, well, exactly. Which is the, the, the it, where it, it I was then going like with like D-Day in 1944 in reverse, where we have, com- yeah. you know, we have maintained that, that secrecy right up to the last minute about where and yeah. when it's going to happen. You know, the, the Germans simply I mean, wouldn't be able to do that because they don't... No, they wouldn't be able to do that. They don't yeah. destroy but, but by the, the same, But by the same token... Well, exactly, which is where I was going with this. So so if the Navy... The Navy's... The way the Navy are actually able able to um, uh, handle this this level of loss, put, d- deliver an operation like this and cope with the level of loss that it delivers, in in many ways is then reflected by the Air Force and the Battle of Britain. Is that the, 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 the or fighter command rather? Is fighter command? There, there is the dramatic moment, you know. What are your reserves? All that, you know, when 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 Churchill goes down to see what's going on. Yeah, but that's only in that. That's only in Park's group. Oh yeah, but yeah, yes, yes, yes. But also, we don't know what tone of voice he said when he said it. Yeah. Okay. He he has deliberately chosen to commit all his squadrons and some of twelve group as well. Uh, yeah. And what that means is ranged against three hundred. Luftwaffe bombers and fighters at around 3pm on the afternoon of Sunday the 15th of September, he now has 335 yeah. Spitfires and Hurricanes, i.e. Yeah, yeah. their Germans are not attacking a, a 3 to 1 advantage, they're actually uh, attacking with a numerical disadvantage, which when you add time yeah. over combat, when you kind of yeah, consider yeah. that there's another 370s elsewhere in Britain, yeah. it's not a problem. So he might have just said, he says, where are all the reserves? And he goes, oh, there aren't any. Yeah. But but it, how yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. told is there are none. 
in a kind yeah, of sort yes, of yes, you know, of it's yeah, come yeah. to this. Oh dear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But but, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't know he said it in that voice. That's just our no, interpretation. And, and of also. Words. And also, Park may well have said, "Well, what we're doing is because we have this ad- this series of advantages that yeah. are, you know." And, he, and he's quotes Churchill's quoted selectively because it's a because it's dramatic. It's a, because after all, after all, it, and it's a thing that it's a thing that we've that, that we've talked about before, and that we will be talking about um, in the future with some of our guests. Is British power at this point the, the, the Dunkirk evacuation? All right, the BEF, the BEF of uh, uh, you know. And it's their right, right and left flanks that have both folded. That is why the BF having to be extracted out of this lozenge, and they've had the BF had a rough time. But this is an expression of raw British power, dynamo. Yeah. What the British have at their disposal, and if 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 how many? Sorry, how many destroyers was it? As it was what? How many destroyers was it again in total? Forty-one are are involved. And no, six no, no. Lost. In the navy. In oh, the navy. Two hundred. Over two hundred. So what? The, the using on, deploying a fifth of a fifth, maybe of uh, he's going to go. Day, uh, James has gone to go look it up in the naval's official history. He's got. He's got. There's a. There's a fat book has appeared. Is that they're basically? Uh, let me. Let me. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen the live cast and and well, well actually, Day, James isn't okay. in the room he normally does the live cast in. So, so, so okay, James behind him. Through, let me go through this out. Okay. So, first <laughs> yeah, of September, nineteen thirty-nine. Fifteen battleships, yep. seven aircraft carriers. 15 heavy cruisers, 41 light cruisers, 8 anti-aircraft cruisers, 1 mine layer cruisers, 113 modern destroyers, 68 older destroyers, 53 modern submarines, 12 older submarines, right. 54 corvettes, etc., 44 fleet minesweepers, 2 gun monitors. So, so I mean, if nothing else in that, you, you you didn't even get onto destroyers until you'd worked your way through all the kinds of cruisers and aircraft carriers. So the navy isn't even isn't even deploying its top its top end kit. Is it? It's you're you're, you're nearly at a hundred capital ships before you get to the modern destroyers. Right. Okay. So so what so what one of the things Dynamo Germany actually, by contrast has twenty two destroyers. Well, there we are, and they lose. They and lose half of which seven of them the, in Norway. Well, I was going to just say half of which are at the bottom of the sea in in, in Norway. I mean, the the, the 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 thing is, but this is the point I'm trying to make is that so much of 1940, and, and I under and you can, I can it's obvious why yeah. it's, it's depicted as Britain on it. You know, poor old plucky us on our ass. But what we're not even we're, we're de- deploying what a fifth of our destroyer strength to do this. None at one of our capital ships, one cruiser. And, uh, yeah, so there's only six corvettes involved. Yeah, exactly. So um, what we're t- what we're talking about here is is in fact, and ex- this is an expression of British strength, British Dominion Imperial strength. Totally. And with and al- and in fact, Allied strength. There's plenty of Dutch ships there and all this sort of stuff. Rather than necessarily an expression of weakness, and and it's so interesting that 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 the German conclusion is uh, the Britain's on its ass. And ripe for the ripe for the picking at this moment, and you can see why they're thinking that. But it's it's a very poor reading of the situation. It's a very poor reading, and it's not as if the British hide their naval strength either. There is a reason why no. the Royal Navy is called the Senior Service, and that, you know you don't need to be brilliant in English to understand the translation of that. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what it means. And I mean, yeah, you know, when you're looking at total ships sunk and destroyed. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, the figures vary because they can't, they're not 100% sure of the number of little ships involved. But let's just say, for, um, the, 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 as close as it's going to be is 231 destroyed, which yeah. includes, out of that 231, six destroyers, 
five minesweepers, yeah. one corvette, yeah. 202 little ships. You know, yeah. 70% of those losses, 70% are due to collision and misadventure. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know, that's not going to be destroyers clanging into each other. You know, this is the smaller yeah. ships. It's people rushing from the beaches, getting onto them, sinking them because they've overwhelmed them, you know, whatever. Um, uh, what is also really interesting is is the proportion of ships sunk. So only 30 British ships in total sunk by air out of, you know, however many are involved, hundreds. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the total flotilla is hundreds of ships. And... Yeah. Um, for 30, by all that entire effort by the Luftwaffe, is a really piss-poor return. No, that's a, t- a terrible return. But it's also because what you're doing is taking an air force that's designed for battlefield tactical intervention, of course. isn't it? For yeah. providing air cover and, and for b- b- breaking open strong points and dealing with troop masses and all that sort of thing. And it's being used to try and attack shipping, which it's never done before, because the Germans just are not think they are think they think in a land warfare way for all the for all the revolutionary for all the for all the for all the idea that Blitzkrieg is some new way of thinking revolution. It's actually it's really one dimensional. Just land it's land warfare. It's one dimensional, and it's not. They're not thinking. I mean, they're not thinking. Uh, 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 strategically at all. I mean, I think it's also really interesting that the Luftwaffe, like you say. It's, it's poor that they then that, that then Goering, who as we've as we've been talking about, has been busy um, getting his hand on. He's rubbing artwork. his fat little grubby fingers together art. and thinking. But the, the, Great, the, 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 well, but that he can even but that he can even turn around and hit them and go right. Yeah, of course we could subdue the RAF now after this, because actually, I mean, it's 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 really interesting how severely the Germans now misread the situation. Yeah. That they think that they can take on the RAF and not and we're not talking about the RAF over France that aren't that aren't vectored, that aren't part of a defence system, you know, and so on. It's it, I mean, because one of the one of the things I think people one of the, one of the things one of the things about the, the, the German war effort is how bad the intelligence is right from right from the get. Well, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's study it. blue, which is carried out by Beppo yes. Schmidt. Now, the interesting thing is yeah, Beppo yeah. Schmidt actually becomes quite good later on. He, he ends up being commander of the first fighter division in uh, in 1944, having commanded yep. a bunch of the um, Hermann Goering regiment as it is when it's sent on the ground in, in Tunisia. But yep. at the time, I mean, this is why it's so bonkers, because there are numerous different intelligence units doing different functions. Yep. Um, yeah. In in the Luftwaffe, just like there are with with British inter- um, um, intelligence, yeah. you know, you have the Y service, you've got RF yeah. Medmenem and all the rest of it, you've got Bletchley yeah. Park, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it's pretty much the same with the um, with the Germans. Goering also has his own private intelligence service, which is funded by him, the Forschungsamt. Yeah, yeah. um, um, but Beppo Schmidt is is a colonel. He's an Oberst, so he is junior to General Martini, who is the head of Luftwaffe intelligence. But Beppo Schmidt is is a is a, a survivor of the Beer Hall Putsch and is a mate of yeah. um, of of Goering's um, and likes the ladies and, uh, likes the ladies and, and is fond of a glass or two. And he's a good he's a good yeah. clubbable chap. Um, and he's also on Goering's personal staff. So his influence is, is far greater than, than Martini's. And basically he hasn't got well, a clue. Especially... He doesn't speak English. He has got yeah. the faintest idea what, what's going on. And he puts together this intelligence appreciation of the RAF, which is basically what Goering wants to hear rather than anything approximately close to the yeah. reality. And it's just a yeah. pack of absolute nonsense. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and and of course, Goering's eye isn't on the ball either. It's not on the ball. So at all. someone who someone who's talking someone who's talking nonsense and is and ha- is in a position of sort of clubbable, connected Nazi influence can wreak even more damage. Yeah. So so, you know, so just when they're having the final big big conference about uh, the Luftwaffe conference on, I think it's first of August, second of August, something like that. Right. So Hitler gives a kind of go ahead for the all out assault at the end of end of July, yeah. and then. Goering calls all these commanders together and he takes them to Karin Hall, which is this massive place he's got in the woods northeast of yeah. um, of Berlin. And they all turn up and he goes, come and have a look at this. And he takes them to his room and there's this absolutely enormous train set. <laughs> and yeah. he starts picking the trains and stuff. And he goes, you're going to love this, yeah. guys. Presses a little switch and a whole load of bombers come over on wires over the top of it. <laughs> well, that's a guy who's kind of totally on it. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I've been kind of working for the last 15 years trying to realign our understanding of Britain. You know, we, we, we've just fallen into this narrative of little Britain against the mighty yeah. Nazi war machine, you know, and it just it just needs a realignment. You know, the army yeah. was very small. We've all accepted that. We know that where they were put into we action, they fought, they fought very well. But there was a very good practical reason in 1938, 1939 for having a small army. And into 1940, yeah. you know, post the fall of France, a strategic earthquake, they then kind of realign it and sort of go, OK, right, we need to rapidly kind of raise 55 divisions and, you know, from 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 yeah. the Timpot army. But the army is the smallest thing. You know, it, it's all about air power. And it's all about naval power. And, and that that suits Britain's strategic purpose before the war. And it's and it suits its strategic purpose at the start of the war when France, a major player, uh, a, a superpower by kind of modern day standards mm. at the time, is its ally. Um you know, this idea that we're all a bit shit is just nonsense. And, you know, the reason we win the Battle of Britain is because we're considerably better. You know, we're, we're fighting yeah. the battle that we've prepared for. with the world's mm. first fully coordinated air defence system. You know, with better tactics, with better intelligence, with better aircraft production, with better repair production, etc., etc., etc. You know, we're, and, and, the, and the Germans are all at sea. We, we've been blinded by the Blitzkrieg and by blinded by this tactical chutzpah, which I know I've, is a line I've kind of said more than once. But it's just, yeah. it needs realignment. You know, this is but the Dunkirk evacuation is possible because of the might of the Royal Navy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But but that also then leads to Churchill was first sea lord. Right. Wasn't he? Before before he becomes prime minister. And, you know, Winston is back. Yeah. In September 39, when he returns to being first sea lord, which he had been at the beginning of the First World War. That was the job he had in the, the, the war before. Before before. The Dardanelles, and then before going to the Somme, and then before being Minister of Munitions, right? So, so he knows if there's one person in the cabinet who knows exactly what the Navy is capable of and exactly, actually, how safe the island redoubt, if you want to, you know, if we're going to yeah, yeah, lapse yeah, yeah. into Churchillian language, the island redoubt is safe. If there's one person who should know that, it's Churchill. Yeah. If there's one person who'd be absolutely certain of that. And I think that often, if you if you feed that into all this political stuff we've talked about in the last week, and that and, and him having to him holding his nerve in front of everyone else, if there's if there's one person you're gonna whose word you're going to take on the how strong the Royal Navy is, it's him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, completely. So maybe that because, because, may, because well, so maybe that's yeah, and Hitler, maybe that's Hitler the conversation is... in the Rose Garden with Halifax, you know. Him, it, maybe, maybe. It's Churchill it saying... nothing to do with the, with come the, with on. the Labrador. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's not photos, it's not pictures with the Labrador. But you know what I mean? And I think, I think 
Even, even, even that, even that, even the cabinet crisis. You, you, you. If you view it, because I think people often look at the cabinet crisis and go, "How on earth did he pull that off?" Given our weak position, and and the the, the fact is, as we've just been saying, and as, like you say, the last fifteen years you've been trying to disabuse people of this notion, it's not such a weak position. And, and maybe what he's having to do is go, "Oh, for God's sake, you lot, pull your pull your skirts up. Come on, yeah." You know, you, oh, you he's know definitely I mean. doing that. I don't think there's any doubt that that and, is but, what he's But also saying. that it's not such, but it's also not such a difficult case to make. Yeah. It, look, the, well, we, and, the, and the, I think the, the other the case general... he makes, uh, the other case he makes is if we start opening peace feelers, we are directly yeah, yeah. going against the terms of our alliance with France. Yeah, 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 you know they're still fighting yeah. on. We cannot do that. You know that, and, and yeah. diplomatically, I, I suspect that's what it is that really. Uh, my, my gut instinct is that that's the line that that persuades Halifax because Halifax is an yeah. honourable man and yeah, 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 you know yeah, yeah. to renege on your on, on, on your diplomatic yes. alliance with your ally that's a yeah well and he's spent and he's spent and he's spent since since Eden was sacked he's spent the he's spent actually two two best part of two years trying to get the diplomatic thing to work right and and has also and has also been right on the receiving end of Hitler breaking his word yeah. of dealing with someone who backslides and can't be trusted. And that's been the hallmark of the last yeah. two years of diplomacy with the Munich Agreement falling apart with, you know, the, 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 the actual invasion of uh, Czechoslovakia in March 39 and all that. And so he 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 knows. He, I think I mean, I think that's an excellent point. But if you've got Churchill going, look. Look how big the. Remember yeah. how big the yeah, navy yeah, 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 is. Yeah, Come yeah. on, you know, yeah. for don't, God's don't, sake. Don't also. judge us through the same prism that Germany is judging itself, because yeah. because Germany is a continental power. We are not. We are an island nation with a global yeah. trading network. Network, yeah. and, and it is just a different set of things. I mean, yeah. the, the, just go back to the whole navy point. Of, of course, is is the Nassos would say. Okay, well, you know, if if the navy's so strong and and got it so under control, you know, why do you need to get all these little ships desperate, you know, dashing across the channel? Well, the reason you need to do that is because what the navy can't do is get destroyers onto the shore. They don't have landing craft yeah. at this time. You know, there aren't yeah, such yeah, things yeah. as landing ships. Um, so no, you need to just don't exist. They don't exist. Yeah. So so why while you are getting as many people as you possibly can off the mole, and it is you know two thirds to a third or whatever it is, as it find or, or three quarters to I think yeah. it's three fifths to two fifths. Um, you, there are still a heck of a lot of people who who need to come off the off the beaches, and that is where the little ships yeah. come in. It is not wholesale rescuing them. But yeah. we should talk about the um, events of Saturday the first of June because <laughs> we, we we've just done a we talk. have ways classic. We were supposed to talk like for ten fifteen minutes about the events of May the thirty first. Here we are, twenty two minutes in. I asked in. a question. <laughs> Well, listen, you know, we're However, not forcing think... anybody to listen to this, Al. You know, if, they, if they're bored and, they're, and, and, <laughs> and someone on Twitter, someone on Twitter said um, <laughs> this morning, said, said, listen to We Have Wees, really boring. <laughs> Full stop. Like, okay. Really? Yeah, fine. You know, whatever. It's not for him. It's not everyone's back. Oh, brilliant. I, I get it. And, you oh, know, people, seen, people can fast forward. You know, if they don't want to hear about the events of 1st of June, it's fine. Um, Go on. So, what happened anyway. on the first of first of June? <laughs> well, of course. So, so um, you know, the, the uh, perimeter is much reduced at this stage, and the, and the full weight of four German infantry divisions who are attacking six understrength battalions at this point by the first of June. Yeah. So most of those yeah. guys have moved into position on thirtieth, thirty first, and yep. um, there's some amazing stories of this. So you've got 
You've got the uh, from Burgu. You've got the first Loyals. You've got the second, fifth Leicesters in in reserve. They are the one reserve, but there's only about seventy of them. So yeah, they're kind of sort of reserve and a bit. Um, then you've got the second Warwicks. Then yeah. there's a kind of there's a there's a bridge. Uh, which is just beyond the village of Hoimil. Um and the other side of that you've got the first East Lanks. Then you've got an, so that's that's one that's uh, one three nine brigade. Then you've got another brigade which is Fifth Borders, who are the TA battalion. Then you've got yep. the second Coldstream Guards. You've been taken out of the Guards Brigade and moved into Fifth Division. And then you've got yep. the Fifth King Zone. And the second Coldstream Guards are amazing because they really are full of toffs. Um, and uh, the Brigadier is Brigadier Beckwith Smith. And, yeah. and um, Lieutenant... Okay, chaps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's got he's got the kind of turny-uppy moustache and all the rest of it. He, he eventually dies Red of diphtheria in a, in a Japanese prison of war camp in Taiwan in 1942. Mm. Um, but right now he's full of vim. Um, and, and he turns up and sees... Um, Jimmy Langley, who is a lieutenant in Number Three Company, because guards yep. guards battalions have numbered companies rather than lettered companies. Yeah. Marvelous news, Jimmy! He shouted, "The best ever!" Short of the German army deciding to call it a day, which seemed improbable, I can think of no news deserving the qualifications of marvelous and the best ever. It's splendid, <laughs> absolutely splendid. We have been given the supreme honour of being the rear guard at Dunkirk. Tell your platoon, Jimmy. Come on, tell them the good news. <laughs> really, is there? A, you know, I mean, talk about blimp. I mean, just absolutely. Well, you know what? But, but you know, but just you know fantastic. what? Um, it, this is actually something. Um, oh, oh, I'm going to digress again now. But well, that's um, all right. Digress away, old man. That is it. Well, isn't that isn't that the way posh? There's a there's a way that posh people process emotion and uh, high stress that to, to people from the outside of posh land is completely incomprehensible. And I think very often that 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 you know, for instance, and 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 it hits its sort of high its high watermark. Is say, for instance, in a film like A Bridge Too Far, where they stop and they go, oh, "No, chap, we're stop. Oh boy, we're stopping for tea." And the Americans go, God damn it, you limeys. That's that's just posh people trying to be insouciant because they're absolutely shitting themselves. Yes. Or, uh, uh, they're terrified. And so the thing you never do is admit, it, it is is admit, admit you're terrified. So you don't admit. And just like Americans go, gee whiz, that was close. Yeah. Right. When, when you know, when when someone is killed. Yeah, right I tell you what, there's no way for you to in a foxhole. Exactly, and it's the and it's just the way it's. I mean, I think I think there is so much cultural misunderstanding even within our country about how posh people. Ex- posh well, people I think you're right. I'm convinced by this argument. I'm very convinced by this yeah. argument. I, and I think I just it's just I was reminding myself that of all as, this this morning and reading it in bed and just laughing my head off. I mean, I just thought it's yeah, because I mean, it's sar- if nothing else is if nothing else is sarcasm, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it's um. Wow, marvelous news, old boy. Yeah. I mean, you think, yeah. It always yeah, reminds I mean, me of, of General Cotton DeWire and and um, yeah, <laughs> amputating his own hand in 1917. Yeah, and and when asked about yeah. it, he said it was itched a bit. 
Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, you know, that's what's where Monty Python. He, what's he going to say? Problems. It hurt like buggery, and I had to, you know, like I, I, I nearly passed out. I mean, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so that's the, the event. So, 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 so what happens with the Cosmic Guards? So they've, they've then got yeah. a sort of, you know, for a bit, they've got a two thousand two hundred yard front, which is a lot <laughs> to cover with not very much. Um, and what's happening is is early in the morning, at first at dawn, they're 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 um, there's a massive um, artillery barrage by the by the Germans. You know, the whole area is yeah. flooded by this stage, and it's kind of it, it's, yeah, yeah. it's getting worse by the kind of hour. Um, so the infantry, the German infantry, are kind of struggling um, to, to, to get up. So of course they're doing the classic thing. You know, you lay down lots of artillery, smother the enemy, yeah. advance yeah. under the kind of uh, under under the behind that barrage, um, and that that's what's going on. And, and the borders, the fifth borders, are wanting to pull back, and they 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 do pull back. They just think the whole situation is so hopeless; they need to pull back. So they're then. Yeah. Someone then orders them back again, uh, and actually, um, it is Major McCorkadale who is the brother-in-law of Barbara Cartland. So Barbara Cartland's already lost two brothers, but her, but her brother-in-law right. is um, is also there, and he is the guy who says, "Right, anyone else who moves back, shoot them." And they see two officers, and they take pot shots, and they don't actually kill them, but they do take two shots, and they go right back in the line. Um, and, there, and then there is this massive, overwhelming kind of attack by the, I think it's the 10th Motor Division, um, which yeah. would then later become the Panzer, uh, would then be called a Panzer Grenadier Division later on in the war. And, yeah. and they, they're attacking, and they do actually get across the, the, um, the canal at this point, and there's furious fighting. So there's furious fighting with, yeah. with the, between the, it is, and it is the, the 5th Borders fall, falling back, this TA battalion, which enables the Germans to get across between the 2nd Coldstream Guards and the 1st East yeah. Lancashire's. But the 1st East Lancashire's have still managed to keep that bridge from, they've blown up the bridge and the Germans can't get, get, get across there. And yeah. they're firing away, and, and, and uh, one of the, uh, the B Company commander is, is um, uh, Marcus Irvin Andrews, He's actually a pre-war regular um, and has served in the Northwest Frontier and all sorts of stuff. So he's pretty experienced and he's an amazingly good shot. He's actually quite a porky lad. I've got to say, he's, he's a big unit. Yeah. Um, but he's a really, really good shot and they're running low of ammunition. So they take over this barn and he gets into the roof of this barn and he says, right, boy, boys, the key here is to keep killing people because if you fire and use your ammunition wildly, the enemy will get confident and they'll realise that you're missing. So basically, yeah. he starts sniping, and the moment he sees an officer, he just takes him out, and he shoots seventeen dead, at least, Jesus. just with his rifle, and then takes over with a Bren gun. And they manage to, and both the Coldstreams and the East Anxious, despite this breach in the in the Fifth Borders line, to hold them up. The, the Borders then come back, and they do manage to hold them up till nightfall. Uh, and Irvin Andrew gets a VC for that. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely wow. amazing. And they do get reason. There's also an, a, an officer in in the First East Lancashire who manages to come up with a couple of uh, or two or three um, carriers, you know, which are these trap vehicles yeah. which can just about get through with more ammo, which sort of keeps them keeps them in. It's not. It's it. it the, the problem is the shortage of ammunition. Yeah, yeah. It's like all these things yeah. when you're when you're kind of you know you're doing a last, last stand. Standing. It's exactly the same yeah. as Arnhem. You know, you do the, yeah, yeah. doesn't matter how brave you are and how good a shot you are and all the rest of it. If you haven't got You've the bullets, you're, 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 yeah, yeah. there's nothing you can do. And they are able to then pull back that night, and and that is wow. the perimeter collapse. But of course, for the Germans to actually move up, that they, they they might be able to move up with you know, but it's still several miles. The other thing about the East Lancashire's is actually they move that they they cross the line on the thirtieth. 
and they're they're within yeah. three miles of uh, they're three miles beyond the canal line, having been told to go and you know evacuate, and then they're told to turn around and go back and defend. Come the forward, yeah. yeah. So it's like Jesus. really close to getting away, and then they can't. You know, oh, and that's, there's that's not very the, many of them. It's like sort of you know. That's eight. the seagull swooping in and taking that lottery ticket out of your hand, isn't it? It, it really it's is, yeah. Uh, and you know, these are just it's just a couple of battalions that, that out of out of the six that I've mentioned, but yeah, you know, it's amazing stuff. Um, yeah, and on that Saturday, daylight evacu- evacuation stops because suddenly the clouds lifted. That tenth tenth, which has shielded yeah. them the whole week, suddenly the sun has burst through and it's beautiful weather, uh, and the the oil refineries are burning, but not as badly as they were. So it's just too dangerous to operate by night. And also because they yeah. haven't got that many people left, you know, actually, um, they can kind of they can sort of do it early morning. Overnight from midnight up until early hours, leave it for the yeah. day, bulk of the daylight hours, and then resume again yeah. that evening. So on this day, the first of June, yes, sixty-four thousand four hundred twenty-nine lifted, of which seventeen thousand three hundred fourteen from the beaches, forty-two thousand one hundred eighty-one from the East Mole. Again, forty-two thousand, and just to reiterate, that is more than the total of German troops that were evacuated from Sicily in five nights. In yeah, one yeah, day. yeah. And 42,000 is what? How many divisions is that? That's a, a couple of divisions, isn't it? No, it's best part of... That's best part of three. three. It's three divisions. F- 15 yeah. divisions. It's, it's 16,000 in an infantry division. So it's just yeah. under three. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, we're going to take a brief break now. And then uh, after the break, we'll be back with um, the view from the other side of the Atlantic. We are joined now um, from, well, we've been across the other side of the hill, the other side of the channel. We're now the other side of the Atlantic. We are joined by the Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Michael Nyberg. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah, and actually, this is your second foray, because you and I chatted in New Orleans, didn't we, um, um, a few months back? Actually, last year, blimey, already, um, back yeah. in November last year. Uh, and uh, we had a great chat then. But but yeah, I mean, Mike, we just thought it'd be really interesting to to see what the Americans are thinking during this strategic earthquake that is, well, less Dunkirk, but more kind of, well, it is Dunkirk, and, and certainly the fall of France, you know, which is clearly going to happen by this point by the time of Dunkirk it's 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 all over for the French mm. by the shouting I mean what's going on in the states at this time I mean how where are we with isolationism and all the rest of it so the way I like to think of it there's a concept political scientists use called free riders which um, is used to describe states that depend upon another state for their security and I, I really do think the United States was free riding on British and French security uh, the expectation was as long as the French army was there to hold off the Germans, and as long as the French and Royal Navies were there to hold off and secure the Atlantic Ocean, there would be time for the United States to figure out what it wanted to do. And Dunkirk and the collapse of France just destroys that in the blink of an eye and leads to this incredible moment of panic that waves through the United States on virtually every level, from um, how do we understand the way France has collapsed to what do we do about it, uh, all the way through. But it is this genuine sense of panic that um, I think you really can say begins this process of the United States making its decision that it will never again subcontract its own defense to another power, uh, a tradition that has continued, yeah. you know, all the way to today. 
that's just fascinating, isn't it? Because, I mean, Al, I don't know about you, but but I, I never really got the sense that there was mass panic in, in in the United States at this point. I kind of, I realised that people, there was a kind of sort of massive wake-up call, but that's not quite the same thing. No, it's panic. It's actual panic. Because because from my, from you know, I think maybe from a British point of view, that isolationism and, and, the, and the political currents that are running and this is all with hindsight obviously all appear sort of frivolous given the given the what's to come uh, or politically unserious given what's to come and what um, what what the german threat actually by 1939 does does represent so so that that that, that I, I mean I, am i right to think that or was it was it was it was isolation isolation still at this point deadly serious as a political force i think for a lot of people it it remains deadly serious and i think for a lot of people it, it it's not so much a question of putting America's head in the sand and pretending the outside world isn't there. But it is a question of not wanting, as in the First World War, to tie ourselves down into alliances that might unduly tie America's hands. So Americans don't want to do anything that's going to put American military power behind Britain and France retaining their empires, all the same issues that had existed a generation before. 1940 just shatters all of that. And I can cite a lot of anecdotes and a lot of things about this, but you know, one of them that I really like, there had been a Supreme Court case that had thrown out illegal wiretaps just a few months earlier. And it's right in here about May 19th or 20th, I think, that Roosevelt writes a secret memo to the attorney general. And he says, look, that wiretap case dealt with income tax evasion. It didn't. They weren't thinking about a world in which America is out there on its own. Go ahead and ignore the Supreme Court. You do all the wiretapping you need to do. We're, we're in a completely different situation now. And, and wow. there's a fear that runs through the United States, an argument that France could never have fallen if it hadn't been for fifth columnists inside, that I'm convinced influenced the way the United States thought about the Japanese internment after Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, it, it, is a, it is a moment in which, just like COVID that we're dealing with right now, almost invalidates everything you had been thinking just a couple of weeks before. So, so in a way, all the all the, the First World War in America settles nothing, but the, the fortnight of of foul galb of the Germans overwhelming France changes everything in in a strange way. That if you if we're looking at a generational, you know, a paradigm shift in political understanding, it you know the, it, we've we talked about this before about how the Germans achieve in three days what they couldn't achieve in four years in the First World War at Sedan. And, again, and this happens again politically because because of this, as we've called it earlier, the strategic earthquake of the fall of France. Right. What it really changes is that the sense in the United States that we're not safe from the fire overseas. So in World War One, America understood itself to be under threat, but not from invasion or anything like that. With the fall of France, you're really dealing with two enormous problems that American strategists now have to think about. One is, how do you respond if the Nazis, the German government, takes over the French fleet, which would give it a sea domination to rival its land domination? And two, what will be the fate of French colonies? And in the American mindset, this is Martinique in the Caribbean, which is where the French aircraft carrier is, and it's Dakar, Senegal, just over the, the Atlantic Ocean from Brazil. So the, the fear is that now what you can see is the Germans with French help or with Germans just taking French assets, it's not so much that they're going to march down New York City, but that they could begin installing friendly governments in Latin America. They could threaten the Panama Canal. Roosevelt's explicit that from Martinique, they could bombard a city like Miami or New Orleans. So it's the sense that now you're in the crosshairs in a way that you weren't in 1917, 1918. But the fundamental right. question comes back. What do you want to do about it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I think a lot of people don't appreciate either that, that you know, after the First World War and, and the kind of massive reduction in size of the, of the US military, you know, for 
best part of two decades, you know, America has been a really, really minor military nation. You know, the army has been grind down to almost nothing. There is there is almost nothing in the echo. There, there literally are 74 right. fighter planes in, in September 1939 and, and 50 B-17s. That's, that's literally it. Um, you, you know, from being the kind of world's leading TNT manufacturer, there is almost no one making TNT in, in 1939 or indeed in 1940. And so suddenly you've got this, although the Navy has been um, has been, been sort of kept up pretty much up to speed in the inter, interwar year, that is it. And there is this theory, isn't there, that if you have a small military, then you don't use it. So right. if you don't want to get into wars, then have a small military. And that's how to kind of avoid getting into conflict. And the converse is true, that if you have a large military, you will use it, and as has been proved um, in, in American sort of uh, foreign policy ever since. But there, there it, are two. It's this kind of like, like we've got to go. You know, the slate is clean. It, you know, I, I, I sort of mentioned Ground Zero when we were chatting b- before we went live. But, but it sort of is in a way, isn't it? It's like it okay, it's it's a blank sheet of paper. Let's start again. But we've got to really move. We've got to sh- get a shift on. It's two. There's two documents that I found that that tell me it's also a conceptual change. It's a mental change. One is from Matthew Ridgway, later you know famed mm. commander in World War II, who was then an officer in the War Plans Division. A couple of weeks before the invasion of the Low Countries, he writes a memo in which he says, "Look, the only real strategic need the United States has is better runways and better access to underground storage facilities for petroleum in Latin America. That's it. That's all we need." A couple wow, of weeks after the fall amazing. of France. He writes something in which he says, look, there are five American strategic global needs. We can only do one of them right now. And that is defend the Western Hemisphere for the, for the foreseeable 18 months. After that, if we don't get moving, we can't do anything. The other report was from Alan Dulles, future uh, CIA director. And, and Dulles writes a memo in which he says, look, the only choice we really have is to take this uh, bad situation of weak American military power and turn it into a positive by trying to show the rest of the world that the way to solve the world's problems is through non-military effects. Now, we know that's not the way the United States is going to go, right? But to me, it's fascinating. It shows just what do you do when you're faced with a, a calamitous national security problem? And as you said, almost no resources with which to deal with it. What do you do in a situation like that? So Ridgway's answer is forget the Pacific, forget deploying anything to Europe, forget everything except trying to defend the countries of the western hemisphere wow that's amazing that's amazing but i mean what what roosevelt does do is is he acts incredibly fast doesn't he, he oh yeah he, he suddenly realizes okay i i am going to fire some of my kind of uh, my 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 uh, secretaries of state i'm going to get rid of some of those i'm going to bring in some other guys even if they're republicans and i'm also going to harness big business and those are two dirty words sort of that's emerged. right I'm going to bring them in because they're Republicans. So, you know, there's also a major shift (laughs) in the Republican Party because of the fall of France. Robert Taft, a very conservative, you know, almost the poster boy of isolationism, was leading in the Republican uh, presidential campaign. Remember, 1940 is a presidential election year for the U.S. Instead, out of nowhere comes Wendell Wilkie, who is uh, an interventionist Republican. So, you know, as a result of that, there's no partisan discord over this, right? Everybody, Republican and Democrat alike, understand what's going on here. So, as you noted, Roosevelt Mm. moves very quickly to get rid of his Secretary of War and Secretary of Navy, replaces them both with Republicans, which is an explicit political statement on his part. He sends another Republican, uh, Bill Donovan, future uh, head of the CIA, OSS CIA director, sends him to Europe to assure friendly governments. Yep. You know, it, it's a it's a bipartisan thing. And as you noted, it comes with, I, I think the figure was the entire <clears throat> U.S. budget f- 
the entire federal government's budget was $8 billion, only 20% of that spent on defense. In the spring of 1940, the U.S. commits $12 billion to spend on defense. So it's committing, what is that, 150% of the entire federal budget. And it's bipartisan. So it is definitely, as you noted, a, a, an earthquake type of moment for the United States. And one that I would argue yeah. we, we haven't shifted our mentality since that moment, except for a very, very brief period at the end of the Second World War. And there's all sorts of weird acts which have been brought in um, by Congress in the intervening years between the end of the First World War and, and 1940 to kind of make it hard for uh, future companies and big businesses to profit from any kind of war manufacturing. The, uh, is it the Vincent Trammell Act, I think it is? Uh, this is some kind of sort of complicated amortization rules and all the rest of it. Mm. And slowly, but not even slowly, but very quickly... Um, Roosevelt dismantles all those, doesn't he? Absolutely. And again, it's bipartisan. Everybody wakes up, even the Robert Tafts, which, again, is the isolationist wing of the Republican Party. Even they kind of start calming down and saying, "Okay, we got to rethink the way that we're going to do this. We 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 may not want to rescue Britain and France again, but we now realize that the gun is now cocked at us and we've got to start rethinking the way that we want to do this. So there's virtually no opposition. I mean, I think at one point they vote Roosevelt essentially a $100 million slush fund with no congressional oversight at all. And nobody blinks right. at it. Nobody blinks. That's amazing, isn't it? So it, it's, it's, it's unfathomable to think of them doing something like that had it not been for the fall of France. Is this a reflection of public opinion as much as sort of the, the political, the, the, po- the American polity realizing that this is what it needs to do? Is that, I mean, what's happening in the papers and what's happening in public opinion? Yeah, so... Uh, this- or is this being led by the political classes who, who actually realized what they need to do. The new Secretary of the Navy is a guy named Frank Knox, who's a Republican who had actually run for vice president on the Republican ticket. Um, And Roosevelt, to his credit, brings in a a, a former rival, former guy that ran against him and brings him in. And one of the reasons is that he's a Chicago-based newspaper magnate. So, um, you know, the the Midwest had been a kind of center of American isolationism. Lindbergh's from Minnesota. uh, And Knox is one of these people who comes in and says, look, Mr. President, they're waking up in the Midwest. Like they're, They're coming to realize that if France can be beaten to its knees, we're in trouble over here too. You know, you, you need to lead this. You need to be in front of this. So I think by the, the, the fall of France, I think you're starting to see the American public wake up too. Um, Time magazine, I think it was, or Life, one of those two, shows this map, you know, that shows Dakar very, very close to Brazil, you know, and shows, you know, all of these countries in South America, which is basically all of them that have kind of pro-German, pro-Nazi movements. So again, it, it's the sense that we're not going back to rescue Britain and France again. We're doing this because we're now the ones in the crosshairs. Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Do you I think there is is, is there a, is there a kind of sort of feeling that you know obviously in Britain we have the national government you know which is sort of cross party. Um, is there a case that you know for the for the November nineteen forty presidential election that yes Roosevelt is a Democrat but actually what you're voting for here is 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 a war leader rather than just a political president. Well, this is the strange thing. So back in the, that time, even though you're not Republican, a war at that point. The Republican and Democratic parties weren't quite as ideologically divided as they are now. There was plenty of overlap. So people like Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York, was a Republican, but very close ideologically to to Roosevelt. Um, It's a different kind of political process than we have now. But that's why I think Wilkie's rise to the uh, head of the Republican Party in 1940 is so important. It means that there won't be any major disagreement between the two parties when it comes to preparation and when it comes to to foreign policy. And then later, when Roosevelt is president, he sends Wilkie overseas in 1941, I think, 
42, maybe early 42, on this around the world kind of tour, both to yeah. convey America's message, but but to, to, to come back to him and say, this is what's going on in the rest of the world. So there's not a lot of ideological space between the two parties once Will right. he becomes a nominee. And do you think once Roosevelt does does you know, come out and say, yes, I'm going to run for the historic third term. Do you think, think that, um, uh, fourth term rather, do you think that's, um, no, it is a third term, third. isn't it? it is um, it's do, 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 you, do you think it's, it's a, a, a done deal right from the word go? I mean, well, I think that the preparations are a done deal. The, the fact that you're going to spend all this money, you're going to introduce, um, uh, peacetime conscription for the first time, you're going to do a basis for destroyers mm-hmm. act. All of that stuff is a, is a done deal. The question really becomes at what point, to, to use a modern phrase, at what point do you draw a red line? If the Germans take over Dakar, if the Germans take over Martinique, are those red lines that draw you into the war or not? And those are questions nobody really has a very good answer to, which is why America's Vichy policy becomes so incredibly confused, right? So the one thing the U.S. wants is for France to keep those assets out of German hands. And as long as they do, the U.S. is more or less willing to give Vichy what it wants. The U.S. government is willing to do that. Uh, and and so has uh, friendly diplomatic relations with with. With Vichy. More than that, it, it sends Admiral Leahy, one of the most talented uh, American administrators of the era, over there as the ambassador uh, with food aid programs and loans and all of this stuff. So it's a, it's a complicated and very strange history. But, you know, what Leahy is really there to do is to try to keep those colonies and keep those ships out of German hands because, yeah. you know, as everybody tells Roosevelt from George Marshall on down, if, if the Germans get a hold of the French fleet – we can't defend the coastlines of the United States, let alone project American interests worldwide. Because we talk, we've spoken, talked about Meza Kabir um, in the course of this week uh, as the, the you know part of the British sort of uh, reaction, and then how the French reacted to that. So, the, the, what, 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 what did the Roosevelt government make of that? It's... Were they like, well, fair, fair enough, you know, because uh, that keeps ships out of German hands, doesn't it? So that serves the American interest as well so, as the British. Yeah. So legally, the Americans have to sort of object uh, and say, well, look, I mean, you know, the British attacked a neutral, a neutral state, uh, unprovoked attacked a neutral state. That's a violation of international law. Um, but, you know, privately, they're saying, look, um, we couldn't risk those ships falling into German hands. So even though this was a really awful way of dealing with the problem. It's a number of capital ships that we no longer have to worry about. The, the concern <laughs> the United States has is um, after Melzer Kabir, as you guys know, the, the Germans um, uh, took away Article 8 of the armistice, which meant that the French fleet didn't have to stay bound to the ports in which it, 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 it had been located. So the Americans are worried that what the French might do in order to keep the ships safe in the British is move a lot of those to Martinique. So what do you do if there's a powerful Vichy fleet that's right there in the Caribbean. How would you handle a problem like that? Uh, or if they all mm. go to Dakar, how would you handle a problem like that? So I think privately most Americans are relieved. Um, but, you know, and, and the French ambassador really doesn't make a very good case to Roosevelt. The French ambassador kind of comes in and says, well, look, we, we Roosevelt says, look, we'll buy all of your warships from you. You need money. We don't want the ships sitting out there. We'll buy them. The French, of course, say no to that. And Roosevelt comes up with all of these schemes to try to help. And the French say no one after the other. So the United States is not particularly pleased by that. And there are reports, you know, the British intel did a pretty good job of convincing American reporters that one of the reasons they did the Merz el-Kabir raid is because the Germans were about to take those ships. 
Now, that's not true, but it sells well to a terrified American public. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and this, Mike, I've got to, I've got to ask you about Joe Kennedy, because you know he's the ambassador. He's a complete doom monger. Um, he's <laughs> kind of got, got a little bit of admiration for the Nazis. He hates commies. You know, he's not kind of the most helpful um, U.S. ambassador in London at the time. But lots of other people come over. There, there's some yeah. um, fantastic people. Raymond Lee, who is one of the military attaches. Um, is very pro-British and thinks that Britain can hold out. You know, you mentioned Bill Donovan. There's others. Um, there's Tui Spots comes over and says, I can't see how the Luftwaffe are going to win this one. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and it's all being fed back. Then there's Bill Murrow and and uh, Ernie Pyle coming over and writing about kind of British phlegm and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's a kind of that summer of 1940 that follows the fall of France is an interesting time for Americans. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's so you, you're kind of rediscovering Britain in a way, right? So I think it's Lord Lafayette, the ambassador uh, before uh, Hastings, right, who says something like, the Americans were speaking of us in hushed tones the way you would speak of a, of a dying patient, right? So what the Americans are trying to figure out is whether Britain is a is a bet worth backing. So Donovan goes over, as, as you noted, Donovan comes back and says, yeah, they're, 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 they're in it. They're, they're going to be fine. Um, so the question becomes, what should we do as Americans? Should we give the British enough to, to, to win this thing? Should we do enough to keep them fighting until we can get ourselves mobilized, which is the Vichy kind of um, allegation that the United States is only going to keep the British alive long enough so that they do the fighting? You know, what, what percentage of your resources should go to Great Britain? But um, the attitude towards Britain, of course, is it changes and becomes incredibly positive, And that's a good thing. Ironically, it's Merzel Kabir that helps to do that. So Britain's willingness to attack a neutral French fleet convinces Roosevelt and many in his inner circle that they're willing to fight on in the war. So it's, it's a weird way that these things go on. Um, there's also the visit of René de Chambrun, uh, a descendant of the Marquis de Lafayette mm. and Pierre Laval's son-in-law, who comes over and for his pro kind of collaboration as he later becomes, one message he does bring is he says, look, I, I don't think the Germans can beat the British. So they are a bet worth backing. The British are, are too powerful on sea. The Germans are too powerful on land. So what the Americans should do, in his view, is help negotiate an armistice between the two, because neither one is going to be able to knock out the other. And of course, when we do this as historians, we have to remember this is well before the Soviet Union is involved in this. So uh, it, you know, from the perspective of 1940, that's the way it looks to a lot of Americans. This war will go on indefinitely because the two sides are so asymmetrical. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, because we, we on our on our little Patreon group, we we were discussing what if the BEF doesn't get away, and one of the things that, that our subscribers were, were sort of got stuck into the idea is what difference would that have made to the American reaction? Rather, whether Britain would have been able to fight after losing all its soldiers. I mean, it loses all its equipment in 1940 anyway, but, but in, in, after Dunkirk anyway, but, but not its people. But if it lost its people as well, we, we, we were arguing what, what, what would have effect would that have had in the US? Would, would Britain have been actually out for the count then, in American opinion? And even if, if Britain is out for the count, what then is the US government going to do about Germany? Because as you say, the threat is via the colonies is via is via the, the, the what's left of the French Empire as much as anything else 
I mean, th- th- then there's a, diff- a completely different question to ask, isn't there? Yeah, there is a plan, though um, I don't know how successful it would have been. One of my favorite documents that I found in the French archives, um, when Donovan makes this great trip that he makes to Europe, uh, the, the, the Vichy and German agents are worried immediately that he's going to try to get to Algeria and Morocco. What they think he wants to do is meet with Maxime Vagon and convince Vagon to build up a French army in Africa that the Americans will then supply. So part of the answer is if the BEF isn't there, if British land power isn't there, there might be a way to build Vagond up as an American ally inside Africa. Now, Vagon himself finds out about this. Um, he warns the French government and he warns his uh, friends who are ambassadors at various countries in the U.S., look, don't let Donovan come into North Africa. Donovan goes over, you know, with a fake name. I mean, it's, it's great stuff. It's fantastic stuff. He falsifies <laughs> flight records. Uh, I was able to track all this stuff down with documents. The TWA, believe it or not, uh, uh, archive has some of these flight records. So I was able to – it's just fantastic. It's classic kind of spy stuff. Except that Donovan, you know, brought his own monogram suitcase with him, so the Germans knew immediately who he was. <laughs> um, so apparently, he had, a, he had a history of these kind of uh, very strange, uncharacteristic kind of mental mental lapses. Uh, but but one plan is if the BEF isn't there, there might be a way to build up a free French force in North Africa under Vagon that hopefully Pétain would eventually back as well. Um, so it just shows, you know, how wide open the range of options were in 1940, how confused things were yeah, in 1940, yeah. uh, and really how how strange an environment it is that, that you're dealing with. So Donovan never did meet with Vagon, but, um, you know, Churchill never gave up on this idea either. Churchill always thought that sooner or later, Vagon, the man who had handed the armistice terms mm. to the Germans in 1918, would sooner or later want to be a part of this great movement. So, you know, the, the U.S., holds on to Vagon much longer than the British do. The British flip over to de Gaulle much more quickly than the United States does. But there's always this hope that you can kind of bring the French back onto your side at some point. And indeed they do, don't they? Because in 1942, mm-hmm. you know, there's Operation Torch and you know, Mark Clark and his little coming out of his submarine and having the yeah. secret talks with Darlan's representatives and you know then you've got um you've got the uh the French expeditionary corps going into Italy uh, you've even got a, a tabor of gooms in uh in Sicily so you have got French colonial troops operating on the side of the allies from yeah from the end of 1942 all throughout 1943 and of course um joining with 7th US 7th army in southern France in August 1944 Fascinatingly, though, n- under n- neither of the two major American hopes, the first one being Vagon, the second one being Henri Giraud, right? It ends up being under no, Giraud, right, right. Who is the yeah. last guy the Americans want in in that role? So <laughs> yeah. it, it's yes. a really strange, strange tale of how Vichy plays into all this and plays into American thinking. And you know, to my mind, it's connected with everything the United States does really until the end of the war. It's connected to Japan because the Japanese take yep. over Indochina. Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's connected to the Africa policy as the United States is trying to figure out what Africa looks like post-war. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tangled web that they weave. And all because of Dunkirk and the fall of France. Amazing. <laughs> the strategic earthquake. Just to bring it back neatly. Yeah. Uh, well, Mike, that's just been Amazing, absolutely fascinating. Re- really fascinating. And... Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a kind of a, a few mates around the world who, every time I have a conversation, I always end up learning lots that I didn't know before. So, and well, and a pro just tip: prove the point. A pro <laughs> tip: If you're on a secret spying mission, don't take your monogrammed luggage. Oh, it's hilarious. yes, indeed. <laughs> the, the stuff well, Phil he does is absolutely hilarious. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I can't please. prove it, but I'm I'm convinced he uh, he leaked one version of his itinerary so that he could fly on another to give so to warn everybody he was coming, friends and enemies alike. Yet managed to slip into Portugal without anybody theoretically knowing he was there, and of course they're tracking him anyway. So it, it's great stuff. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, Mike, well, please do come much, back Mike. on again. And, my and great pleasure. Anytime, gentlemen. Anytime. Fantastic to hear the perspective from across the pond. More Dunkirk reflections tomorrow. Bye for now.